You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And today we get to read um, Psalm 105, verses 26 through 45. And if you grabbed one of the Bibles coming in, it's on page 472. So I'll give you a minute to turn there. Psalm 105, 26 through 45. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of all their strength. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. And he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to meet together freely and in the space that you've allowed us to be in, and we pray for this school. We are thankful for the partnership that we have with them and pray that you would continue to um, allow that relationship to to be good. And Lord, would you please... um, Bless the school, bless the, bless the people that are in the halls daily. God, all of the students and the faculty and the teachers and everyone, Lord, would you please um, be a constant presence here and spread through this school. Lord, help us to, to continue to bless the school with the ways that we can serve and um, just continue to be a good witness here as well. God, I pray for Free City Church in the new year. I pray for, um, for growth, but I also pray for strengthening current relationships and um, just coming together as, as one and helping each other grow in knowledge of you. Lord, I pray for Brandon today. Would you speak through him and help reach everybody here with the message you want us to hear? And, yeah, we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. 
Uh, my name is Brandon Williams. I'm the director of youth and missions here at Free City. I'm also, I get the privilege to be a part of our preaching cohort um, with just some guys in the church that come together and we talk about passages. And then every now and then Casey lets one of us preach. Um, and so uh, if you are new here, maybe your New Year's resolution is to re-explore some spirituality. Or maybe your New Year's resolution is, hey man, I remember my life was like when I was in church growing up and now you've found your way back in. I wanna say welcome. We hope you give us a couple weeks um, to try us out. Um, and so if you're, if you're coming in, you're gonna be kind of a little um, off kilter a little bit because we're normally going through the book of Matthew, but we're taking a pause these first four weeks of the new year because we wanna draw attention to our Bible reading plan. And so we believe something that some people might find absolutely crazy. We believe that um, a triune God created everything. And not only did he do that, but he wrote us a book through the divine authorship of humans. And we believe, and if you can get that, if you can believe, okay, if he created all things, then he can write a book, then the next step shouldn't be that big of a jump to say we should read it. And so seeing Jesus together, it's a Bible reading plan. In three years, you go through the entire Old Testament, and every year you'll go through the New Testament. You'll read one New Testament chapter a day and one Old Testament chapter. And so one of the things we love about seeing Jesus together is it comes with a journal. In this journal, we think it's an option. We don't think it's the option, um, the only option, but we think it's an option that's going to do a beautiful job of drawing your heart attention to your heart. Where are you? You're going to read the scriptures. And as you're reading the scriptures, you're going to make some observations. And then that's going to lead you to pray through your pen through this thing called Acts. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And so what we love about the Seeing Jesus Together journal is what it's going to do, it's going to bring you to this crossroad. And what that crossroad is, you're going to see a beautiful Jesus and now you're going to reflect back and the scriptures are going to critique you. And when you look back into yourself, you're going to be left with two options. I'm going to submit under the authority of what this scripture says, even though I don't feel like I agree with it. Or you're going to elevate yourself over the authority of scripture and you're going to say, hey, I'm going to go with what I feel. And we believe here at Free City, if you come to that crossroad and you constantly elevate the scripture over yourself, it is going to change you. And so that's why we want you to read the scriptures. We believe that it changes you. And it's not just the Bible. It's not like reading Psalm 105 is going to change you. It is the message of the Bible revealed in Jesus Christ that will change you from the inside out. And so we believe... Um, Man, there's this pastor, Tony Morita, um, from North Carolina, and I love the way he explains it. He says, in the morning when he makes breakfast and his kids come down and they sit at the table, day to day he doesn't notice a difference. But when he walks back upstairs and he sees their baby pictures, he can see the difference. And one of the main reasons is they come down and they have their breakfast every morning. They get their nourishment. So if you want to see constant growth in your life of looking like Christ, come to the scriptures and have breakfast every day. And so we believe scripture is one of the ordinary means of worship in your life, a regular ordinary mean of worship that will change you. Another one that um, we just partook in was singing. 
Some of you have been in church your whole life and you have probably never asked this question. Why do we sing? Some of you walked in, you were like, this is weird, they're singing. What are they singing to? But why do we sing? How do we sing? Um, that's, that's what we're gonna focus on today. And I wanna give you the answer so that then we can unpack it for the rest of the time. I believe that the infinite and the finite meet in a specific moment. And singing is one of those moments where the infinite and the finite meet. What I mean by that? Infinite, God has no beginning or end. We are finite. We have a beginning and we have an end. You have a birthday and we all have an expiration date. And so the only way the infinite and finite can meet is in the presence. And I believe singing is one of those moments where we can meet the infinite God in the presence. And so before we get too far into singing, we, I need to give you all permission that I need to give myself a long time ago. If God created you like me without the ability to sing, it's okay to not sing very well, all right? It's okay to look at God and be like, okay, God, you made me good. I can't sing, that's okay. Um, my story is I got saved going into my junior year of high school and man, I just went all in. I didn't know anything, so I just went into everything. And I joined our youth choir and I was belting and it was terrible. And so every single time we would have a performance, I would go right in front of the mic and our, man, bless him, our worship director, Brother Barry, he would always kindly look around and he'd say, hey, there's some height things going on. Let's switch some people. Um, and I was always the only one that got switched. So um, I won't hold it against him, but um, it took me a while to learn that singing is not about our voices. It's about our heart posture, how we come before God. It's not about the lifting of hands. It's about the lifting of fears, doubts, and troubles to a holy God who cares. Singing is about having it all together. It's about remembering back to how God loved you when everything was falling apart. Um, for me, this past season um, is when my most meaningful singing happened. And I was in our kitchen, on our floor, on my knees, and I was so anxious and so fearful, I couldn't even muster up words. And there was this psalm playing over the, uh, the speaker. And um, I realized I needed to borrow words because I didn't have any to say. And so I borrowed this psalm. And um, in that moment, I just felt God didn't care about my voice. He didn't care about my posture. He didn't care about how loud or how quiet I was. He didn't care about my speech. He didn't care about structure. He cared about my heart, my fears, and my worries. He cared about being the perfect father to perfectly comfort his imperfect child. And so I want you to imagine this scenario. A daughter running up to her dad and saying, Dad, I wrote you this song. It's about how much I love you, how much you provide for me, and how much I need you. And she starts singing it. And about a third of the way through, he's like, Ah, let me stop you right there. I think you're a little off. Um, you remember that, uh, that girl in your class, your choir class? Hey, try singing it like she would sing it. Yeah, yeah. All right, now let's start over. No, the dad would not do that. He doesn't care what the voice sounds like. He cares about the heart of his child coming before him. 
And so what I want our sermon point to be, if you're a note taker, write this down, go get it tattooed on you, something like that. Um, Remembering powers our worship. So that's what we want to walk away from. Remembering powers our worship. And so I want to make the argument that worship is simply dependence. We are depending on something, so we give it our time, our effort, hoping it will give us peace, identity, something like that. Some worship money, some worship success, some worship people's opinions, some even worship their own fears. We are dependent on these things because they drive our perception of reality. They give us value, identity, so we give them our thoughts, our effort, and our time. And so we, want, as Christians, want our worship to be powered by remembering because remembering what God has done will comfort us to depend on him now. We look back at what he's done so that we can be changed now for a future of dependence. So we want to look back so God will change us now for a future of dependence. And so we could restructure that to remembering powers our dependence. And ultimately, as Christians, our dependence is upon one thing, the finished work of Christ to make us righteous. No work of our own, no other hope, only Jesus. And so why am I so focused on remembering? Because if you haven't thought about why do we celebrate Christmas every year? Why do we celebrate Easter every year? Some of you, like I learned, Epiphany is a thing, so why do we now celebrate Epiphany every year? Um, it's because we so easily forget So we need to set aside time so that we remember. And so for me, this happened. um, There's no way to ease into this story other than I was using the bathroom. um, And so I was in a very vulnerable position. I'm in my own house. There's no way to ease into it. I'm just going to say it. And I look up and on our shower curtain is a spider cricket. So I don't know if you know anything about spider crickets. There's three things you need to know about spider crickets. Um, one, their name is exactly what it sounds like. You take an eight-legged demon and you mix it with a cricket. Um, and so it's a spider and it's got these weird, le- I was going to put a picture up, but I didn't want to freak myself out. Um, and so uh, the second thing you need to know is their defense mechanism is they jump at whatever they perceive as a threat. And so um, I'm sure I was very threatening in this position I was in. Um, but uh, the third thing you need to know is this thing's looking right at me. And in the movies, you know, they're like, they go into slow, like, and no, fight or flight kicked in because I knew it had fight or fight. So my fight kicked in. I grab a towel behind me and it comes and it jumps at me and wham, smacked it. Uh, I thought 18 years of baseball was preparing me for a major league career. Uh, No, it prepared me for this moment. Um, And I get up, do my celebration dance. I'm like, whoo, it did it. Uh, I wish everybody could have seen that. Um, uh, but now, for the next two weeks after that, I would like slightly open the bathroom door, cut the light on, and I'm like checking in. And then I kick the door open, and I'm like, where is it? Um, and there never was another one. Um, but now I don't do that. As life's gone on, all different things have clouded my mind. I've gotten normal to walk in the bathroom and there not be a demon creature in there. Um, and so I've gotten to where I've forgotten that moment. I've forgotten it. And so just like that moment, we as people, we get to moments and we're like, man, God, I'm never going to forget that you did this for me. And then two weeks later, we're back in the same spot. God, where are you? How could you? And so to help us, um, I see three main points in this passage. 
And um, the first one is the redeeming power of God in Egypt, the provision of God in the wilderness, and the graciousness of God in the promised land. And so we see a characteristic of, of God in relation to a location, his redemption in Egypt, his provision in the wilderness, and then his graciousness in the promised land. And so we're going to jump in um, halfway through this psalm. So I just want to give you a little context. I promise we're actually going to get to the passage in a second. Um, But this psalm, the first 15 verses are directly quoting a song written by David in 1 Chronicles 16. And so in 1 Chronicles 16, what happened is the Ark of the Covenant has finally made its way into Jerusalem. It's a huge moment in the history of God. It's like he has given the promised land to his people and now his presence is dwelling with them in the promised land. And so in chapter 16, what we see is David has created a tent to store the Ark of the Covenant. And so they bring it in. And what does David do? He sings. The moment's happened and so he then sings. And so the first 15 verses are just David's song quoted word for word. And the song is about remembering the wondrous works of God. The song is about a holy God perfectly orchestrating the history of his chosen people with the melody crescendoing at this moment. The faithfulness of God is completely on display. And so this psalm uh, was written for people to sing. It was written for us to sing, or the NASB translates it, joyfully shout. So if you're like, singing's too intimidating, we can all joyfully shout about the faithfulness of God to provide and protect his people. And so what we see here is it unfolds. He goes to what, how God was faithful to Abraham, how God was faithful and he protected Joseph, how God was faithful and he protected Jacob. And so what we're going to focus on is how God was faithful and how he protected Moses and the Israelites. And if I don't feel intimidated enough, we're going to try to summarize the book of Exodus. Um, and I don't have a watch on 30 minutes. We'll say something like that. All right. So the first point, the redeeming power of God in Egypt. So we're going to focus on this 26 through 38 right here. And so background, if you don't know anything about the book of Exodus, it starts out with the people of Israel, God's chosen people in slavery. An oppressive king who is power hungry and focused on controlling the Israelites has used this instrument of human slavery. In the beginning of Exodus, we see the new Pharaoh who did not know Joseph looked around at the numerous Israelites and he got scared that they would come together and overthrow his power. So what did he do? He oppressed them. And this shouldn't be surprising because if we look around, the people who have power are so, so driven to keep it that they'll do anything. They'll do unhuman things to human people to keep it. And so in Exodus chapter 2, 23 through 24, the people cry out. The people of Israel cry out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God hears, and I love this phrase, their groanings. They cried out because hope could not be found outside, or hope had to be found outside of themselves. They needed someone greater than Pharaoh, the greatest in the land, They needed a promise greater than the lies of their mind, and they needed a hope greater than their situation. So what does God do? God sends them a redeemer. And that's where we pick up in verse 26. He sent Moses. 
And so immediately when I say redeemer, you should be connecting dots. Hey, wasn't Jesus our redeemer? Yeah, in the midst of our slavery to sin, according to the apostle Paul, God sends a redeemer on our behalf. So when we're looking at this, we need to be seeing the characteristics of Jesus we see um, from this story. And so in verses 28 through 36, we see the plagues. And if you've ever seen uh, the Prince of Egypt, um, you know the song, let my people go. And then all the plagues and stuff. It's a great montage. You should all watch it. Um, And in that, each plague was an outward expression against a God that the people were worshiping. And I don't have time to go through them all. We'd be here way too long. But each time God is calling attention to something that they worship. And each time he is showing how he has power and authority over what they were worshiping. And so what we see here is that it's not all of the plagues and they're not in the like correct order according to Exodus. So we can assume that that is not the author's intent here. What the author's intent is to use these to show how God is freeing his people. The plagues we see, he sends darkness. He turns water into blood. He sends swarms of frogs, even the chambers of the king, even to their holiest of places. God shows, I have reign and power here. There were swarms of flies and gnats, and there was hell for rain and fiery thunderbolts, locusts. And all of these to show his power and authority over the things that they worshipped. And so the, the main plague that I actually want to spend time um, uh, for us to talk about is the Passover. We're going to see this in verse 36. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the firstfruits of all their strength. So we need to understand what's happening here because that sounds pretty bad. How could a good holy God do something like that? And so... Um, verse five is gonna give us a lot of context to help us understand this. So verse five says, remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. So when we're looking at the Passover, we have to look at it as this, this image of miracles and judgment falling upon the same thing. And so one, what was Pharaoh's idol? The guy in charge, what would have been his idol? His firstborn son the next king to reign, the next quote-unquote God to take control. So what does God do? He finally rips out the idol from the one in charge. But two, then we see this, what falls upon all the people, this says. So all the Egyptian firstborns, their sons were taken away. But yet with Israel, we see this beautiful, miraculous miracle where God offers them a way out a way to protect their firstborn. And this is where we get the Passover. There was a way that the judgment of God would pass over their firstborns. It involved a lot of things, but the main thing, the slaughtering of a lamb and taking the blood of that perfect lamb and putting it over the doorpost so that the spirit of God, the judgment of God would pass over their household. And so it's easy to look at this and say, how could God take away firstborns? But as Christians, we can look at it as a miracle that God chose to save any of them. We all deserve judgment. But because the wages of our sin is death, we all deserve judgment. So it should be miraculous to us that God would choose to save anybody. And so the Egyptians were held accountable for their sins because there was not a Passover. There was not blood for their sins. And so what we need to see, the Israelites were passed over But listen, the judgment was postponed. 
It wasn't that this was atonement for their sins. No, it was postponement for their sins. And where I get this from, in 1 Corinthians 15, we see Jesus described as the firstborn of creation. Firstborn's connecting here. And so what did Jesus do? He took on flesh. He was not created. He was not born. This is a title. He is the firstborn. He is the authority of all creation. And this firstborn enters in and dies on a cross in the place of his blood, then atoned for even all the way the sins of the people. The Passover lamb for the firstborn of Israel now is Jesus who is the Passover lamb who died in our place. And for me, the most like, thing I can't wrap my mind around in this is Ephesians 1.5. He agreed to this before the foundation of the world. Before he created anything, the triune God, they were loving each other. And apparently in conversation, they said, you know, it'd be good if we created. And we create in our image. And then as they see the divine plan unfold, they see sin entering the picture through Adam and Eve. And they see that there's going to be a need for atonement, a need for redemption, a need for the people's sins to be paid for so that God could be just. And Jesus says, I'll do it. Before they've even created it, they could have just said, hey, that's too much of a cost. We're not going to do that. No, the triune God, this one God in three persons says, yes, I know what they're going to do. I know they're broken. They're going to mess it all up and they're going to keep messing it all up. But I love them enough that I am going to pay their debt. And so the miracles and the judgment of God here brought death and life. Each brought glory to him because justice and love were fully intertwined and fully on display in this. And so in Matthew 26, we see Jesus he describes himself as the, um, in two days at the Passover, the Son of Man will be crucified. And then they go in and they partake in what we have as the Lord's Supper. And then at the end of it, there's this beautiful thing. When Jesus is about to go to the garden, and he's about to be offered up, and he's about to be taken to the cross to be crucified. Um, in verse 30 of Matthew 26, they sang a hymn. Starting to see a connection. They sang a hymn. They sang a song. And the reason I think they sang a song is Jesus knew he was about to be gone. They were about to be alone and they're about to be looking around and they're about to be saying, Well, when's he coming back? Where is he? This guy said he was God. Now we saw him die. Where is he? And so I think Jesus left them with a song so that they could remember. Remember, when I'm gone, when things are hard, when life seems low, remember this moment. Sing this song to remind yourself. And so we don't need to look back and say God redeemed those people. We need to look at us and say God still redeems his people and still sets people free from captivity. We are in the captivity of sin. Sin is ruling over us just like Pharaoh rules over the Israelites at this time. And yet the reason we want you to read the Bible is because freedom is found in the message of the Bible. The freedom is found in the gospel truth of Jesus Christ. Just like um, God sent Moses to redeem on behalf of God, God sent Jesus to redeem on behalf of us. The righteousness of heaven was exchanged for the isolation of a cross so that we could be made righteous. 
The royalty of the kingdom was exchanged for the posture of a servant so that we could become sons and daughters of the king. The perfect was treated as he was imperfect so that the imperfect could be made perfect. God redeems, and we know this because Christ redeemed at the cross. And so what we see in these plagues through, um, through Moses' leadership um, on behalf of God is that there's no power, there's no God, there's no leader, there's no force that can stop God from redeeming his people. Not even what we fear most in this world, which is death, can stop him. The redeeming power of God won't be stopped. And nothing can stop him from redeeming us right now. Not political views, not anxiety, not fear, not singleness, not wars. If you're, God, if you're one of God's children, just like me on my kitchen floor, there's nothing stopping him from coming when you call. And so I just wanna tell two quick stories. I have seen this. I have seen God's redemption happen in lives. When I was doing camp ministry, um, there were two girls um, and they were about six weeks apart. Um, well, we would come and get them for two weeks and we'd go through the book of First Peter together. And so one girl, man, you could just tell, she wore a ton of makeup. She always had her hair done, wearing baggy clothes. You could just tell and she'd express to us, she did not like an inch of how God created her, not an inch. And so as her counselor is helping her unpack these things and trying to get her what, it's, what it means to be a child of God and how beautiful that is and what true beauty looks like, she has to sit down with me and this other counselor and just through hours of just sitting there, just reminding her, telling her truth over and over and over and over again. I'll never forget the next day she grabbed us with tears in her eyes. And she said, for the first time in my life, I looked in the mirror and I liked what I saw. And I liked it because I saw myself as God sees me. And the next girl, um, a different situation. We were just sitting down talking with her. And she's like, I need to tell you all this. I have attempted to take suicide. I've attempted to end my life twice. And after these two weeks, I had a plan in place. I had everything that the day after I was going to take my life. And she said she wanted one last hoorah, one last fun time with her friends before she ended it. And she sat down and she said, because of this community, because of these people, because of the message of the gospel, I value my life now. I have a purpose. And it's because when I look at myself, I see how God sees me. And so these are two stories when I'm thinking about remembering, powering our worship. I can look back at these two stories and what I can see is that God still redeems people. If you're sitting in here thinking, man, there's no way, you don't know what I've done. What I'm telling you, the truth of the gospel is he can redeem you right now. One of the reasons we preach is we believe God changes people in seats. God redeemed those in Israel or in Egypt. God redeems us now. And so our second point um, in verses 39 through 42, we see the provision of God in the wilderness. Um, the first thing I see, God guides his people. Um, he spread a cloud for covering and a fire to give them light by night. He's guiding them through the wilderness. God guides us. Um, the next thing, God hears his people. 
And it's easy to see this in verse 40. They asked and he brought. That is simplistic. That is true. We ask God brings. That is beautiful. But we don't need to glaze over the situation. The people were scared. They were worried. And they were without. They feared literal death from starvation. They even say to Moses who's leading them, it would have been better for us to stay slaves in Egypt than to die of starvation in the wilderness. God doesn't seem near at all. And the truth we can cling to right now is we can't make God's silence equivalent to his nearness. God can be silent and he can still be very, very, very near. Near enough to hear the faintest prayer or song you can sing with all the strength you have to muster up in a single moment. What we see here is they cry out to God, even... um, they remember, so they're remembering the plagues. They're remembering the Red Sea that they just crossed over. They're remembering the things that God did, the provision of God, and it's powering them to pray now. So my question to you is, what do you remember? need to remember that God's done in your life to power you to go to him now? What are moments in your life that you can cling to that even when God seems silent or far off, you can cling to to say, God was near then. I know he's near now. And so my challenge to you, when God seems silent, the singing of his people is always going to ring the loudest. God does not change. But when we sing, when he seems silent, I guarantee you it will change you. Faith and hope are cultivated in the darkest times because that's when we cry out the loudest. So not only does God hear his people, um, he wouldn't be much of a God if he just heard his people, but it's miraculous. He responds to his people. He gives them quail. He gives them bread because they asked. God responds to us. All of his promises find their yes and amen in Christ. If you have placed your trust in Jesus, then you are found in Christ. And I think we glaze over that truth way too much. All of the implications of being found in Christ, being a son of God, that's enough to where we should never forget that and we should always sing thanks of that. And so when we're found in Christ, God is pleased in us. And this is why singing and worship and prayer is not a performance. If God created all things and he looks at you and says, wow, you're so good. I'm pleased in you. Then we can simply just be us before him. Uh, Be the you that you feel like you have to hide from your friends. Be the you before God, the 10th date you. You know what I'm talking about. First couple dates, you're like the best part of you. Then by the 10th date, you're like, okay, now I can actually be myself a little bit. Be that version of you. Be the you who is open and vulnerable. And so we can miss this part of the story. They're not really asking God in the best way. They're angry, they're upset, um, they're fearful. And here they're demanding. They're mad at Moses. They're saying, hey, take this to the God you're representing. These people are not approaching God in the way that we would probably say is correct Christian posture. But yet God is still gracious to them regardless. 
And so I think we spend way too much time trying to figure out the right prayer. How much time? Where do I do it? Um, do I have my cup of coffee? How much of the coffee has I drink, have I drank so I let the caffeine kick in? Okay, now I'm really there. No, we're trying to figure all this out when I think God just wants us to pray. He wants us to come with what we have. And so I'm borrowing these terms from somebody, but I feel this in my life. I'm scared to go before God open and vulnerable because it's going to leave two responses. I'm going to be transfigured or I'm going to be disfigured. And so what I mean by transfigured is the definition, if you look it up, it says to change you to be more beautiful. So if I go before God, there's a chance he's going to change me to be more beautiful. But for me, there's also a fear that I'm going to be disfigured, which that definition is to spoil the attractiveness of. So if I come before God and I'm open and honest and vulnerable, what if he finally looks at me and says, wow, you're not who I thought you were. You know, Brandon, you've been a Christian a long time. You should be way better. And so either God will fully accept us and we begin, begin to change us into something more beautiful, or we have this fear that he's going to reject us and leave us. And so what I want to call back to, if we are found in Christ, there's only one answer. There's only one option. We're made into something more beautiful because God will never reject his children. He will never do it. God always responds with grace, mercy, and love to his children. I'm sorry um, to say this to you. There's nothing attractive about you. I'm sorry. Same for me. Not just you. Guys, I'm not that attractive also. All right. But the beauty of the gospel is God takes our brokenness and makes it more beautiful. And when you experience taking your brokenness before God and leaving more beautiful, it's going to change you. Whether it's singing, whether it's praying, whether it's reading the scriptures, taking your true self before God, you will leave changed. One of the songs I always go back to, um, it's a beautiful lyric, and it just says it over and over again in the bridge. Slow down, child. You don't have to work for love anymore. Slow down. Child, you don't have to work for love anymore. Slow down, child. You don't have to work for love anymore. Slow down, child. You don't have to work for love anymore. When you are found in Christ, you don't have to work for love anymore. Because when you reach out, God responds. In the last part of this section, we see um, in verse 42, for he remembered his holy promise, begs the question, does that mean God forgot? Was God over here too busy and then looked over at the Israelites and was like, oh man, I forgot. My bad guys, here I got you. Of course not. He didn't forget it at all. Um, I'm borrowing this from uh, Dustin, one of the guys in the preaching cohort. Um, it's like a birthday. When I wish someone happy birthday, it doesn't mean I forgot their birthday. No, it means it's just the appropriate time to bring it back up. So God hasn't forgotten his promises. It's just the appropriate time for him to bring his promises back up. It is a calling to memory as his words are fulfilled. And so this is starting to piece all of the rest of the passage together. We remember the works of God in the scriptures and in our lives at the appropriate time. When we are low, we remember God is close to the lowly. 
when we are lonely, we remember, hey, Jesus was lonely in the garden. We feel separated from God. We remember that there is nothing that separates us from the love of God. And so as we get to our last point, and this is the point that I just clung to the most as I was preparing this, the graciousness of God in the promised land, verses 43 through 45. One of the hardest things about reading scripture is you can read this and be like, oh, they were, they were oppressed and they were freed. Now they're the promised land. That happened so fast. But man, in reality, this is years and years and years of wandering and pain and crying out. And we read this as it just happened so fast. Then we look at our lives and say, God, why don't you work that fast for me? But what we see here, God's promises being fulfilled. The promise to Abraham of a place and a people was coming true. Moses leads them up to the Jordan and then Joshua takes over and leads them across the Jordan into the promised land. And we can see the the, uh, echoes of Moses there. Um, Moses led them across the sea. Now Joshua is leading them across the water source into this new land. And if you notice here, Verse 43, so he brought his people out with joy, his, prom- his chosen ones with singing. He could have brought his people out anyway, but he brought them out joyfully. He didn't drag them through the mud. He brought them out with joy and singing. We see this in Exodus 15 when they cross the Red Sea. What does Moses do? He writes a song and they sing. They sing because they want to have something to cling to, to remember, because they know they're going to forget. And so what that song, if you would reference Exodus 15, there's full of illusions of the hand of God being stretched out to provide and protect his people. And they would sing of this provision because they would forget about the times that God reached out to provide protection and provision. And I don't know if you've connected it here. That's the same message we're singing and the same message we're preaching here at Free City. The outstretched arm of Jesus upon the cross providing protection and provision for a lost and wandering people, i.e. you and I. For us, we sing songs to remember of the promise of the new covenant, a covenant of eternal grace purchased and secured by the blood of Jesus. And so for me, my biggest sin struggles of this season has been thinking this earth is my promised land. My sinful pull is to desire the things and comforts of this world because they're tangible. I can feel them, I can see them, I can grab them. If I give them enough time and effort, they can even make me feel good. And so when we look to the death and mainly the resurrection of Jesus, we see that there's something outside of this world that we can't simply touch, see, and feel. And it's at a place far beyond this earth. It has all the joys of this world multiplied and none of the sorrows. On the cross, the outstretched arm of Jesus reaches through space and time to secure his people forever. And that is our promised land. Um, A church I went to when I lived in Waco, Texas, the pastor, J.P., He would say this a lot. I need reminding that this earth is the closest hell I will ever experience. So when we cling to it for life, 
we need to remember this is the closest hell we will ever have as Christians. And so singing is driven by reminding ourselves of the cross and of the coming kingdom. Uh, So I beg you, when we sing in church, sing with eternity in mind. Sing with redemption in mind. Sing with a heart that's fighting to believe the words you're saying. Sing with a heart that as your voice gets louder, your soul gets quieter. Sing with your eyes fixed on the empty tomb. Because God is so gracious to his people. This psalm is joyful and it's so like upbeat because it's focusing on God, not the sins of the people. It's God's part in redeeming, providing, and fulfilling all things for his people. What it leaves out is the constant rebellion of the people. If you read the scriptures, you're going to see this common theme. God's good, gracious to his people. They start to fear. Their fear leads to doubt. They cry out to God. And then he responds, and he responds graciously. And then fear starts to creep in. It leads to them to doubt. They cry out to God. Then he responds, and he responds graciously. And I challenge you to look at yourself. In your life, do you not see that same cycle in your life? God has been gracious to you. Fear creeps in. Then you start to doubt. And then through doubt, you cry out to God in a way you feel like you've never cried out before. And then he responds, and his response is always gracious. Just like with my doubts and fears, God is gracious in the moment as the big eternal plan unfolds. He's not too busy working all things together to miss what I need right now. The same with you. Whatever small moment you feel like you have in your life, God will meet you there as he continues to work out the big, greater plan of your life. We have an assurance because if God paid the price of his son, there's no way he'll withhold any other grace from us. 1 Peter 5 tells us the God of all grace. The largest example has been shown. God could be silent and we have everything we need to fully trust in him because of what his son did on the cross and his resurrection three days later. But yet he is still gracious to meet us in the small moments because he knows how quick we are to forget. So church, I urge you, when you sing, let it be powered by you remembering what God has done in your life. And if you're struggling to find something God's done in your life, look at the scriptures. Let them have authority over your feelings and say, God, you did this then, and I believe that you'll still do it now. And don't let the, let the hardships of this life make us forget. There is joy found in the Lord. These people are brought out of bondage, shame, and brokenness with singing and joy. God took them from here and brought them to here with joy and singing. And I think that's why people are so drawn to Free City. What I see in our community, man, our church sings, our church prays, our church serves, and they do it all joyfully. And people see that and it gives them hope of a remarkable possibility that I can be that joyful too. And then we get the easy job of saying, hey, I'm only joyful because I have Christ. And the promise of the scriptures is that you can have him also. 
And so we are a people who were slaves to sin, marked by a powerful God, redeemed by a powerful God in the midst of our suffering, to then walk in the wilderness of this life, balancing unknown fear and trust as the big plan unfolds of God preceding us into a new promised land that will never be kicked out of, that will never be broken, that will be fulfilled. And it's outside of this life. Um, one of another ways we remember is communion. Man, the body, the bread represents the body of Christ broken, handed to you to remind you that this is what made you whole. The broken body makes you whole. And the, the wine or the grape juice represents the blood of Christ shed for you in death so that you would have life. Let us pray. God, thank you. Man, God, I am the most guilty of this message of anyone. I am so quick to forget. I think of all the times in my life where I said, God, there's nothing that I, nothing could ever happen to make me forget this moment. And something very little happens and I forget that moment. So God, help us to cling to you. Help us to remember what you have done in our lives, in the lives of those around us, and in the scriptures to say we want to trust that over ourselves. Lord, as we come to the table and we partake in this meal and then we sit down and reflect, God, would you transfigure us just a little bit? Would you make us just a little more beautiful by this constant rhythm of singing, listening to your word, eating of this meal prepared, and then reflecting on what you've done? Lord, we need you. All glory be to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, the tomb is empty. The throne is occupied. Come when you're ready. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas, please visit our website at fcclawrence.com.